I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, communications architect Daniel Berninger. If it turns out that human beings are actually super, super valuable or sort of unmeasurably valuable, that's awfully depressing as a billionaire. If it turns out that you can replace human beings with investment capital and you're a billionaire, then boy, that, that's a terrific thing because if you could actually replace a human being, it would be fantastic for the cause of concentrating power. Berninger, one of the engineers responsible for what we now call voice over IP, will be sharing how machines are being designed to drive efficiency at the expense of human connection. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and this is Team Human. I've got to start by thanking those of you who are helping keep this show in production. Uh, B. Clayton Hackett a grad student developing a complementary currency in Philadelphia, William Malison of Park City, Utah, Anderson Bell, Richard Dana in Obsolete, uh, Ada Paris of the Friday Club London, Dode, Sean Feeney, Ryan from Salem, Jesse Bauman, Chris Kane, Soren Lindgren, and of course, Suzanne Sloman and everybody at Green Rabbit Bread. Team Human would not be possible without you. If you want to become a supporter of the show, come to teamhuman.fm, where you'll see links for uh, one-time and regular contributions to the show. 
Hello Team Human, Steven here, audio engineer, producer of the show. You may have already noticed the show sounds a little different than it normally does. As luck would have it, the episode where we're speaking to a voiceover IP and communications expert, we suffered our own voiceover IP technical difficulties and some audio problems. Was able to save the show, but unfortunately not at the fidelity that you're used to. If you notice little clicks and pops and chirps, that's probably the ghosts in the machine who overheard us talking about them this episode. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the content of this show. Now back to Rushkoff and episode 39 with Daniel Berninger. So I've been watching all of this Trump stuff while he's in Europe and coming back and stuff about Jared. It's strange. I've been watching it from what I feel is his perspective, from their perspective. And it's creating an alternative scenario. I mean, think of it a bit like um, watching Twin Peaks and putting together a picture of what's happening in something that doesn't really have a plot. And I feel like MSNBC and CNN, in their own well-meaning way, are trying to connect the dots and uh, infer an intentionality of what's going on when it's not really there, or it's certainly not the intention that the side that they're criticizing has. Now, when you look at it from their perspective, the perspective of, of Trump and his supporters, it doesn't look so very crazy. So Jared Kushner wants to set up a private channel of communication with Russia. Why would he want to do that? Why would he want to set up a private channel outside of American intelligence and in the embassy of the Russians? Because he thinks that our intelligence agencies are committed to a status quo that will not allow for an open, honest relationship with Russia. He believes that our intelligence agencies will create obstacles, will undermine his activities. He wants to make Russia a friend. And each time a new investigation or a new fact is brought up, it feels to Kushner and Trump and their supporters uh, like an impediment to the new alliance that they're attempting to establish, that the old Cold War warriors are so committed to an adversarial relationship that they won't allow the two strong countries to talk with one another, to really become friends. And that includes Hillary. Hillary Clinton and her posse protecting the banking industry and older corporations against Trump and his younger, new, rich companies. See, everything Trump says is exactly what he thinks and believes. If we can stop thinking that he's accidentally blurting out things that are strange and random and crazy, it all makes sense. He says, I want Russia to hack Hillary's emails. He means it. He just plain means it. It's not a matter of whether he said it or not. Of course he did. And the 30% of Americans that support him 
support that idea. They want Russia to hack Hillary's emails. Why? Because they believe they are part of a revolution of the disenfranchised against the establishment, and that this revolution has to happen by any means necessary. So they look at an issue like uh, NATO and Trump's uh, refusal to make the sorts of statements that presidents have made before about the one-for-all and all-for-oneness of our commitment to defending NATO nations. He essentially communicated, well, I'm not really sure. I want to go all super gung-ho on this U.S.-Europe thing. Europe's not really paying quite as much as we do, and it's kind of a bum deal. And what did that lead to? I mean, it led to a lot of outrage from Trump's perspective and his people's perspective. What did it lead to? It led to Angela Merkel of Germany saying that, well, Europe may need to just lead itself. And of course... All the American press said, oh my gosh, this is a terrible, terrible thing. Europe is going to lead itself. The New York Times says this is an indication that relationships between Europe and the United States, our ties with Europe, are worsening. From the Trump perspective, well, maybe Europe taking care of itself is not so bad. Must America's role be positioned on its global leadership? Is America allowed to be a friend without being the defender of everybody? That's their perspective. And they look at it and say, well, there's a certain sense to it. And then they look at the media and the mainstream American media is treating it as if it's part of a giant treasonous plot to overthrow something and to invade the Pentagon. So they're talking to the Russians. In the Oval Office, Trump talks to the Russians. He calls his former FBI director crazy and says the case has been putting pressure on him and not letting him engage with Russia the way he wants to, and he's trying to make it stop. Is that untrue in some way? The whole case is putting pressure on him. Did he surround himself with losers and potential traitors? Probably. Did he know he was doing that? Probably not. But let's say he even did. A war against establishment politics, establishment media, and the international industrial agenda uh, is a war against forces that he and his allies believe are weakening everyone. This is why he sees allies in Putin, in, in Erdogan, in Duterte of, of the Philippines, and other strongmen. Is that unprecedented? Of course not. Know, this is business as usual in America, but usually it's done undercover. The way we supported Noriega and Saddam Hussein and Uganda and Egypt and Morocco and Saudi Arabia. It's easy to project a dastardly logic onto Trump. It's easy to project any logic at all onto Trump because he's discontinuous. He's unresolved. He's like a, a puntillist or an abstract painting that's just open to our projection. But I've spent time in America, in places where his perspective is shared. No, they don't want to lose their health insurance. They don't want to lose their Medicaid. But they don't see government handouts as the way to increase America's resilience or sustainable economic equality. They feel that affirmative action and other plans have put minorities on equal footing or better, and now they need someone to push back against the entrenched 
institutionalized discrimination against them. It's not a matter of whether it's true. But when we on the left or in the media push against Trump in the patronizing way we do, as if we really don't understand what they're saying, we only make matters worse. You know, as much as it may pain us to say it, the 30% of Americans supporting Trump are humans with valid experiences, justifiable feelings, and a sense of utter alienation from the mainstream media that tells them how Trump's bumbling citizen in the White House shenanigans are not Mr. Smith goes to Washington, but the second coming of Adolf Hitler. If we paint them that way, sure as heck they will act that way. I get it. It's too absurd to embrace a Trump presidency as normal. It's not. It's an angry, unqualified TV celebrity being tugged around by people smarter than him and with much bigger agendas. But to pretend that it's illogical or unfathomable doesn't serve anyone either. To treat every action as intentionally treasonous rather than simply an affront to what it is we think government is for how the United States should behave is disingenuous as well. And it pushes our potential allies even further into a defensive crouch from which no amount of logic can save them. You're on Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Media Squad at Queens College Laboratory for Digital Humanism. I'm your host and mascot, Douglas Rushkoff. the disingenuous blunder of media from all sides that too often distorts issues and gets us worrying about the wrong things. Just as MSNBC can get me worried about the Russian infiltration of the White House, many of our leading technologists can get me worried about the threat of robots and AIs to humanity itself. Well, our guest today, Dan Berninger, is a communications technologist who feels that by accepting the underlying premise of technology's biggest fear-mongerers, we may be overestimating just how far these technologies have come. So, thanks for uh, thanks for coming on. There's so much uh, so much I want to speak with you about. You know, to start, I saw a piece that you wrote either on Medium or an email where um, it reminded me of something I had written a few years ago when this place called Bright House started um, claiming that they had these, uh, they were using MRI machines to uh, analyze people's responses to advertisements. And as soon as they made this announcement, it was a two-paragraph press release about using MRI machines to scan people's brains as they looked at Coke and Pepsi ads, all of these articles came out about whether this was ethical and is this mind control and what does it mean? And I wrote a piece saying, I don't even think this is real. You know, that, that I think that, that we're arguing about the ethics of something that doesn't even really exist. I, I don't think that sticking people in MRI machines is going to give Pepsi or Coke uh, unfair knowledge about how to brainwash uh, the global population. And you were making a similar argument, I think, about all the threats of AI and, you know, that Elon Musk and all these people are, are saying that, you know, what they're going to be able to do in a few years. And we're all arguing about it rather than really evaluating whether or not uh, 
there's any truth to their claims. Right. I'm making two points. One, I'm making the point that you make, that there is such a thing as team human, and that we ought to be interpreting things in news and, and, and claims from the perspective of team human. And then there's team machine, which gets all excited about, you know, incremental, interesting things. But, you know, the metaphor that was just coming to my mind as you were describing the MMR, MRI, is, you know, it's like looking at a parking lot and watching where the cars park and then claiming to know what goes on inside an office building. In other words, it's just, you know, it's interesting, but it doesn't, you can't connect the dots. Yeah, I mean, you've been talking about Team Human in one way or another since probably before before I have. I saw YouTube back when of, uh, I think it's, it was at the uh, uh, kind of the celebration of the John Barlow Declaration of uh, Independence of Cyberspace. And you, uh, you, when you ask the room, who, who in this room is human? I think exactly. Yeah, I do that. Uh, frequently ask who's who is human, and it turns out a good portion of the people attending are. And then well, that was for a point, though, because then you were asking them about, you know, the re- repression of human autonomy that can happen through, you know, through uh, improperly uh, configured technology. Well, again, I think, I think it is useful to think about think about it in terms of a conflict, right? A, a conflict between team machine and team human. And there's an agenda when you join a team, right? So that, you know, sort of that you have an emotional attachment for your, to your team and you want your team to win, even though sometimes it, the merits may not support that. And so I, I do think we as humans have to hang on to the fact that we are in team human and that there are some people that are not as interested in Team Human. Right. Well, when they join Team Machine, I mean, they're still humans, but I guess they're, they're, they're joining something other than, than humans, right? Are they sing, basically singularity people who think that machines um, will replace us or should replace us? Or, or do you just really mean kind of techno-solutionists who think that machines will have better solutions to human problems than people do? No, I mean, I think there are people that are disconnected from sort of the reality of humanity in general, right? So after, let's say after your first billion, you do not necessarily share the problems of humanity and you're going to sit there and get all excited about building cities on the moon and, you know, traveling to Mars. And even you could lower it down your first million or whatever. You're not, you're sort of isolated from the challenges of humanity. And and the reason that's important is because you know, a, a government is sitting there trying to create a platform of flourishing for the people that, let's say, live within the borders of a country. And the outcome for those people are what I'm calling the outcome for humanity, for the humans. But not everybody is suffering in the same way. You know, the incompetence that um, a government, say a government that invades another country and spends $6 trillion dollars, you know, the suffering due to that step is not uniform. But I'm saying the people on Team Human are suffering that directly. Well, and, they, and I guess at least the government is, is supposedly beholden to the people, whereas the corporation might not need to have the, you know, any public interest uh, in mind as it operates. So that's why, again, we, we come back to Team Human. So, 
So Team Human gets to choose its government, right? So in theory, the people are choosing its government. And so the question is, when we choose government, how do we hold government accountable? And so if we go back to, you know, in the government, like DARPA, for example, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, is spending a lot of money figuring out how to attach machines, computing, to the human brain. Now, how do we feel about that as Team Human? That seems to members of Team Human were like, why are you doing that? Right. Or we could ask the same question of, of Elon Musk, though. You know, he says that we have to keep up. Uh, we've got to keep up with robots, you know, and and that means changing who we are as humans in order to uh, uh, compete with their functionality. Right. And, and but again, Elon is a private citizen and he can say anything he wants we get into trouble, and, and I guess I, I'm sort of sticking with this government point in that Team Human, in theory, the people control the government. We can't control what Elon Musk is doing, but what ultimately ends up happening is you get this collaboration between what Elon Musk is pitching as he's going to save humanity by attaching computers to our you know, brainstem, but in order to do that, he needs to get buy-in both from the people and from government, presumably investors, but that's up to him. And, and so inevitably he's, he's selling, he's selling, selling, selling as to why this is a good idea. And here we sit back at Team Human and we should say, well, you know what? <laughs> this does not make any sense to me. You know, anywhere, and again, I think this is sort of the emotional aspect of belonging to Team Human. In other words, I don't really care what you say, but if you start out by saying that humans are losing to computers, then I'm thinking you're not valuing humans very highly or, or in the same way I do. Right. Of course, a lot of the people who are arguing that, so when you see a, an editorial, I think it was what, Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking and someone else, I think, got together and wrote an op-ed saying we've got to compete more effectively against all these machines – um, you, you don't look at that as, uh, I guess what you're saying is that there's underlying assumptions in there that don't reflect team human as you understand it. Right. So what I'm saying, there's a team human, the humanity writ large lives on something called planet reality, right? You know, I don't, let's say team, the average person in team human doesn't have a million dollars in the bank is somehow living paycheck to paycheck. They're just basically trying to survive. In reality, they don't have a government job. They don't have, um, you know, subsidies. They're just trying to live their life, and so they are sensitive in in that kind of environment to what government is doing. And and so the outcome for that person in humanity is one thing in America. It's another thing in Somalia. But what you're paying attention to is, you know, how much does sort of individual you know, initiative and responsibility, how far does that get you, right? And the external factors that determine your success or failure are these things that I think collectively as team human, we ought to be paying attention to. And we are not pursuing the same factors that an Elon Musk is pursuing. Elon Musk lives on planet non-reality, right? So he's, he's already got his basic needs met and so he's just conjuring up, you know, the next trip to Mars. Right. Well, he's also looking for a way off 
away off the planet for himself or his or his progeny um, if it doesn't work out here. Right, and it's again back in the T human. You know, it's it's silly for us to let him off the hook with that. In other words, oh, we need to go to Mars and let's just start working on that. And I think, wait a minute, why don't we figure out how to make, for example, education work in this country? How to make the basic economy work in this country? Why would we spend any time or resources attaching computers to, you know, our brainstem when we're screwing up on on all these basics? Uh, and so, essentially, I think what they're saying, and, and it's a, and it requires a sort of a very pessimistic, narrow view of what is human. They're essentially throwing up their arms and saying, "Well, you know, humanity's a failure." Let's just move on and attach computers and head to Mars. It's, it's, it's just silly. Right. Well, I think they understand human humanity as information. And if, you know, 10 people can sort of uh, hold the essential information of what it means to be human, whether in their DNA or a few uh, USB sticks of, of uh, Wikipedia knowledge, then let them starseed something else. You know, I, I don't think they look at humanity as an organic form with some sorts of, uh, you know, collective rights, but rather uh, a, a uh, they look at humanity digitally, really. They look at humanity from the perspective of right. machine. And I, and I think you're right. You're right about that. And that is just a stunning, stunning assertion that you know, you could wrap up all that is human as ones and zeros. And again, we can look at them and yeah, they're the rich ones. Maybe they, they know everything, but, you know, just anchored down here as, as a human being and, and the vast span of, uh, of humans on earth is just an amazing assertion. And now again, the reason I, I feel this way is I'm a technologist, right? So I, I build things and, and understand, you know, electrical engineering and, build companies. And so I have, you know, a lot of respect for people that can build things, build buildings for that matter. But you also see that what goes into it is not that magical, right? So you know what works and what doesn't work. And then, you know, I turn the other direction and I just watch humanity and, and humans at work. And I'm just in utter awe of, of just the daily life of humans. So, you know, Anytime somebody compares a machine to what a human does, you know, I can just laugh at that, that that's just ridiculous. You know, what is a human so far, you know, vastly overwhelms what is machine? It's just a silly conversation. And the other thing is that as you trace and unwind what it is that machines are doing, whether it's wonderful or mundane, you eventually end up back at, a human creativity. So absent human creativity, the machines don't even exist. Right. Or you, you, I mean, I've had limited experience with algorithms and, um, I know most, most people think of algorithms as these complicated little artificial intelligences that are self mutating. And, you know, most of the algorithms in working on Facebook to figure out your newsfeed and to even to keep track of your behavior, they're not even as complicated as, as a square root algorithm that I tried to write in basic once. You, do you know what I mean? These are like four little step uh, algorithms. They're not thinking machines. They're just little algorithms. Right. And they're just expressions of human creativity. And, and one of the places people 
go astray in, in, in these types of conversations is, is that what, what computers are doing um, are, are simulations, right? So they look at some natural phenomenon or human decision making and they simulate that. And, and the gap is that at some point somebody says, well, the simulation becomes the thing itself. And guess what? It doesn't. In other words, you cannot pour computing power into a simulation and eventually turn the simulation into the real thing. So, you know, an apple is an apple created by whatever process that, you know, people can have different views about. And we can create a, you know, a computational model of an apple, but there is no amount of computation from Moore's law going for a million years will ever turn the simulation into an apple. Right, but the uh, some of the simulations we do in computers, like uh, the word processor simulation of a typewriter or an Excel simulation of a spreadsheet, um, they can create a a file that serves the same purpose as a real book. Well, I mean, again, but it's going from machine to machine in your case, in, in what you're describing there. It's a yeah, symbol I mean, so system, it's just, right? It's like, oh, it's a real set, a real it's set just of from symbols. one symbol to another symbol, but. <laughs> You know, again, we're not touching something that is living. In other words, you know, we just we have no clue uh, what makes something alive. And, you know, we have ideas of, you know, in the direction and it's you know, something people might want to chase. But and you can whatever it is you figure out, you can put into a computer program. But this notion of us being overwhelmed by you know, and sort of pushed off the planet by machines. Well, what that is is us being pushed off the mach the planet by humans, right? So there isn't humans start everything. It's it's the human idea that originates it. It's a human definition of success that determines whether or not um, the outcome was what you wanted. It's all human. So if the machines wipe us out it's not going to be the machines wiping us out. It's going to be humans wiping us out. Right. With machines. So, I mean, I guess the, the takeaway from that is that, you know, team machine is really just other humans. You know, it's, it's other exactly. humans using machines. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's in a particular agenda. And this is, and you had mentioned, I'd been thinking about this for a long time. I mean, I, I think about all this in terms of, you know, the process of concentrating power, right? So humans, inevitably are quite interested in concentrating power and, and doing it through wealth or through government. And, and the advantage, of course, of, of concentrating power is that you now get wealthier and, and protect your wealth. And so machines are just a, a mechanism for concentrating power, but it's, it's, it's facilitation. It, it, it is not the original idea. In other words, it's not consciousness that's deciding what to do, and it's not, uh, it doesn't get to evaluate the outcome. So it's a mechanism for concentrating power, and in the sense, I think it's very similar to nuclear weapons in the sense that it's it's a threat, it's a um, it's is sort of in a sense violence and and coercion, but it is not a standalone entity in and of itself. Well, I know that you know Kevin Kelly will argue you know what technology wants as if uh, you know he and Ray Kurzweil act as if technology is a life form, that we started it, but now it's alive and has its own agenda, and we have to learn how to uh, uh, cooperate um, with it rather than 
uh, be in charge of. And so again, I think that's that's just you know they're just trying to have an excuse as to why things turn out badly, right? So whereas we would prefer from Team Human to hold humans accountable for why things turn out badly. Um, and so if people are not getting educated um, in the schools, we'll blame that on machines. No, actually, we should blame that on humans. Um, and, and so, again, I think somebody needs to hold them accountable for those assertions um, and just say, look, you know, prove it. You know, what, what evidence besides, you know, emotional fear um, suggests that, that, that if you unwind any of these things, you'll end up back with a human being. Well, where they do have some point is that if we create kind of self-programming devices or uh, algorithms, programs, AIs that are supposed to uh, improve themselves based on whatever initial parameters we, we tell it to go for, um, we can set in motion something that behaves differently than we may have expected or that has some sorts of unintended consequences. And differently from a factory, you know, a factory is making pollution and it's pouring into the water. We go, oh, my gosh, that was bad. Turn it off. You know, so at least we can stop doing it and then try to clean up whatever we've done. I mean, now it's more like releasing, it's a bit more like, a, you know, a biochemical warfare in that we're releasing things that mutate and and could mutate, you know, beyond our yeah, ability so I, to contain I, I, I don't them. think so. Um, in the sense that, yeah, there's lots of things that have unintended consequences. And so when you blow up an airplane, you're not quite sure how it's all going to play out. But you got to sort of stop when they try to make the leap to human learning, um, to something that is is learning and it, it will keep going and end up somewhere that was had nothing to do with what was built in by the human in the beginning. There's some line there that essentially becomes the doctrine of team machine that says, yes, we're going to set this in motion and it's going to end up someplace where, you know, meaningful that we just are not anticipating at, at the beginning. And, and I'll believe that when I see it. Well, they do. I mean, even, even before machines, you can set a program like Walmart in motion and it ends up having, you know, devastating effects on local economies because, uh, and you could trace that back, as I often do, you know, trace that back to central currency or trace it back to the chartered monopoly. Say, oh, look, this is you know, this is what happens when... It's all humans making decisions right. all along. And that's, again, that's part of, you know, when you see a, a machine, and, and I'm fine calling Walmart a machine, um, but to the, to the extent that the machine is having unattended consequences, that gets into this area of not valuing what is human, right? And so someone that is in the process of trying to accumulate power, it's, it's reassuring for them if they can shrink what it is human. Um, and I presume, you know, anybody that is, you know, running a, a war, having people get killed, it's, you know, for your own sanity, you're going to have to shrink what it is to be human. But then that, you know, again, we call that psychotic uh, normally. Right. That's the sociopath who can go into a, a girl's concert with bombs strapped to him, his body and blow them all up. You know, it's not seeing these girls as human on some level. Exactly. And that's and so maybe that's the cause. That's sort of the summary 
of the cause of Team Human, and that is just to assert and, and hold people accountable for the sacredness of what is Team Human and the dignity of what is, team, what is humanity. And that if you see people belittling what is humanity, you should, you know, get ready for something bad to happen. Right. And, and often these things happen because the, the human engineering that went into something um, becomes uh, almost accepted or naturalized. You know, so people like I, I talk about money a lot, how central currency has this extractive pull. It was programmed with an extractive, almost anti-human, anti-circulatory bias. But today, most people think that's just the way money works, that that's the function of money. And it's not. It's the intention of our money's founders. And it's, a, it's an important distinction for people to make. And it's harder and harder to do in, in uh, technological landscapes that they don't really understand. Right. And so I, I think you're onto something with the language and, and about the anti-human aspects. And so we should be constantly watching and, and you know, organizing ourselves around, oh, well, you know, why would we go along with this sort of anti-human behavior? And just, you know, some simple examples. So I, you know, pass through life uh, detecting in various places in life the various sort of dehumanizing uh, experience one has in, in uh, interacting with machines. And, and one of the, you know, typical example that everybody has is, you know, the call center. So you, you call up the call center, and the first thing they say, your time is important to us. And, and then, you know, that's a lie. And then everything else they say to you for the rest of that experience is a lie. And, you know, they're worried about the quality of the experience. That's why we're, we're recording it. And, and so this is a, a machine that has been, um, it has humans in it, but it, they've made it, you know, push the efficiency and the, the numerics tracking the, the productivity of it to such an extent that they've just turned it literally into a, a machine with a few humans here and there. And it's, it's dehumanizing for the people that are inside the machine, and it's dehumanizing for the people that interact with it. But the, the key is that we as human beings put up with it, um, but it has consequences, you know, and, and it, people um, really hate interacting with call centers. Right, but in some cases they'd prefer to they, they I mean they would prefer to just go online and interact with nobody. And and, and and that's their option. But as long as, you know, we are holding folks accountable and, and so to me, a call center is something that doesn't work, isn't working, but yet it still exists. And so I would argue Team Human isn't doing its job in holding people accountable. For example, I went to, you know, rent a car in Los Angeles a few months back. And it was a machine, and and the hilarious part about it was they had a screen with a with an operator, just the head of an operator sitting there talking to me, and it was just really <laughs> bizarre. And you know, was it a human in the thing, or was it a virtual? It was a human human being in some call center <laughs> in some remote location, talking me through pushing the buttons on this machine. And it just seemed so dehumanizing for the operator. It was dehumanizing for me. It was really confusing in terms of your normal protocol of interacting with people and, you know, should you interrupt them or when should you say <laughs> goodbye. Um, but it was just an example of just 
really cluelessness with respect to how to interact with human beings. They, you know, they drove the efficiency as as far as they could, and they just, you know, threw up their hands. Okay, well, let's just stick a you right. know, an operator there to talk to them. Right. Well, you understand what what that probably happened was they they were analyzing their their customer service data, and they saw that oh gosh, between busloads, we have seven people sitting at each Hertz office they do nothing for 20 minutes then a bus comes in and they're all, there's a line and they're all too busy and then the, the that line is processed and then they're stuck again so let's put all you know let's put them all in one place and just have them available as needed at each location virtually through these monitors i mean so they've they've cut their costs and then externalized the uh the stress to the to the consumer but uh Gosh. Yeah, so that's, <laughs> you know that's how Team Machine works. And Team Machine is all about efficiency. Um, but we as Team Human don't need to go along with it. And, and in, again, the, the, the part of the apparatus we supposedly control is government. And, and so a lot of times these companies uh, will seek protection from humans through government. Uh, and if government says something um it has the force of coercion and so it's harder to complain so i so i just think you know if team human existed if, if people knew they were on team human and were interested in protecting it just like you know people would be you know advocates for their sports team you would get together and 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 push back on these examples so you have faith in our ability to use government to regulate a better, more pro-human environment? Well, no, I, I have negative faith in the sense that <laughs> uh, generally everywhere that government touches something, it, it makes it worse. And, and I put that on us as Team Human, allowing that to happen. And I, and I believe it happens because of this disconnect between accountability, right? So you have um, an entity that is making decisions and doing things of which it does not suffer the consequences of failure. And so it never learns and it just presses on. So no, I think in general, government is a very, very large machine in of itself. But just to give you sort of a positive example, you know, that we're using right now and that thing called the internet. And so one of the things that I always found curious was that the internet emerged as sort of the ultimate communication device out of the ultimate destruction device. And so in the, the 60s, when they were figured out that, uh, you know, the explosion of, of a nuclear weapon would wipe out the traditional communications, they set about creating a new communications model that was more robust. And so we literally ended up with this thing called the Internet because of nuclear weapons. Right. We got this good thing out of an originally, uh, not bad impulse, but a defensive impulse. I mean, it created, we wanted to create a more resilient communications infrastructure, and we got something more resilient. And resilience is just, you know, one of many of the qualities of the resulting, uh, you know, the, the resulting packet switched uh, world that we're in here. But what what do you see as i mean currently then as as citizens or consumers or actors i mean what is our what is our high leverage point to promote a more um human centered society so i think one thing to pay attention to is is what we're doing right now and and sort of the difference between what is human and what is not human one way to, to discover that is to discover 
conversation and, and humans interacting. And so one of the things that happens in, in an effort to concentrate power, uh, one of the things that happens as Team Machine is pursuing its own ends is the elimination of conversation, that things are done through coercion, you know, fear, you know, a lot of this, the effort, and, and obviously Team Machine is, is extremely well financed. And the reason Team Machine is extremely well financed is that it's, it's terribly, terribly important to think or compelling to think that you can replace a human being with investment capital, right? So if it turns out that human beings are actually super, super valuable or sort of unmeasurably valuable, that's awfully depressing as, as a billionaire, right? So if you're a billionaire and it turns out that the most value in life you end up sharing with everyone else, that's not, a, that's not great news for you. If it turns out that you can replace human beings with investment capital and you're a billionaire, then boy, that, that's a terrific thing. And in which case, that sort of accounts for why machine capabilities attract so much investment is because if you could actually replace a human being, it would be fantastic for the cause of concentrating power. Right. Well, and also uh, uh, machines and digital information scale in ways that humans don't. You, know, you can't, you know, it, whenever I, I see venture capitalists talking to someone about a business plan, whenever they see humans involved, wait a minute, you're going to need an employees? It's as if <laughs> that's the death knell. Oh, no, we can't do it if there's humans. It's got to be totally automated as if, uh, you know, as if that will let them infinitely scale with a, with a, a, a zero marginal right, cost. Right, and there's two problems with that. One uh, is that, that it doesn't work. So we observe Facebook or we observe any of the large platforms, they have reached a degree or a sort of a size of, you know, a machine that has reached its limits. That obviously, you know, Facebook doesn't want to have a whole lot of human interaction with 2 billion users. So it's, it's forced to try to come up with algorithms for everything uh, and automation, but it, it finds that it, it just can't. And that Ultimately, the inability to navigate what's going on on their own platform demonstrates that they've reached a, a scaling limit. And, and recently, they had to throw up their arms. I don't know. They, picked, they maybe hired 3,000 people to, to manage some of the you know, darker parts of Facebook. Um, you know, it, it just doesn't work. And, and so there is human you know, something magical that we can't quite put our finger on that they're not going to be able to replace. This time, and, you know, they've said they were going to do it multiple cycles here, and they're not going to do it this time. Right. And if these are companies that are claiming they can come up with an algorithm that'll go in your car, you know, that will somehow make the decision between, you know, running over school children <laughs> or crashing into the post, you know, that they'll be able to do that effectively. But they don't yet have an algorithm that can distinguish the uh, dissemination footprint of, of a fake news story from a real one. You know, so either they're lying on one, <laughs> on one end or the other. And I, I have a feeling they're lying about, about their competence, not, right. the, not and, their and, incompetence. And again, it's, I think they get away with it because there isn't really a coherent team human that's just calling bullshit appropriately. For example, we spend a lot, I think the human beings are very polite. And, and nice, and so we, we don't want to call out the silliness, but let me give you sort of a small example that we, we bend over backwards to make this, this automation work. 
my father, who's a PhD organic chemist, and he's technical guy, he likes to tinker things. He bought one of these Nest thermostats that came out a couple years ago, and he plugged it in, and he, you know, cost a couple hundred dollars to have somebody to come and install it. But what he found once he started to use it, and you know, it's cool, it shows you the temperature on your computer, etc., was that it had a functionality that you it detected motion, and that if you didn't walk in front of the thermostat, it thought you weren't there, and it would turn everything off. It would turn off the heater, turn off the air conditioning. And the thermostat, you know, he put it where the old thermostat was, and so what he literally had to do in order to get this quote-unquote automation to work was to change how he routed his path through the house. He actually had to sort of take a long way down a hallway uh, to pass the thermostat <laughs> so the thermostat knew he was there to get to the kitchen. In other words, it's just silliness that you know we end up having to accommodate the machines to make them work. And this is certainly be the case when we get around to you know driverless cars. The driverless car will work if the humans spend a whole lot of time accommodating it. And I fear that you know the sale for driverless cars is oh we're going to end car accidents. And they're going to take that selling term and kick human beings, actual human beings, off the roads in order to make it work. Oh, well, and it's uh, just an extension of what the car did originally. I mean, in the old days, you wanted to go from, you know, your store to the pharmacy across the street. You walked across. You know, then once there were cars and all, then you had to go down to the end of the block to the intersection, cross in the crosswalk, and walk all the way back. Otherwise, you were accused of being, you know, the new term was jaywalker. You know, there, there will be all sorts of digital jaywalking uh, behaviors to be uh, uh, modified and, and contained uh, in the coming decades. And, and I think someone could check, but I mean, there are not very many, you know, driverless cars out there. But I, I think their track record at this point is far worse than, you know, per mile than the average human being. And they're already getting in accidents and, and causing problems. So, again, I think, you know, they will make a bunch of claims. And, and, and gee whiz, whenever something goes wrong, it's going to be called human error. And so, you know, unless Team Human is paying attention, we're going to get blamed on both sides. We're going to be displaced, have to accommodate, and whenever something goes wrong, it'll be our fault. I mean, I keep arguing that human beings are not the problem. We're the solution. But we're also the problem <laughs> in, in your logic. You know, we're, we are because because we're the ones ultimately who are responsible for these anti-human uh, devices and platforms that we're building. Yeah. So so it, it, but let's if we start there, I, I think we have a, a better chance at solving the problems and, and fixing things. And so, no, no, we do not have to go to Mars in order to survive. No, we actually just have to fix our visions of, you know, how the economy works, how to educate people, how to avoid violence, et cetera. So there's, there's just a long list of things that, you know, we should be working on rather than trying to figure out how to create a city on, mo on the moon. And, and where do you uh, focus your uh, technology development skills these days? So I, you know, I keep hoping and, and have hoped since I was at Bell Laboratories in the early 90s that conversation, in particular voice conversation, is going to bail us out. That ultimately if you watch when humans are at their best, either producing or just interacting with each other, there's some conversation going on there where 
one human being is sort of conveying what's in their brain into an, uh, the brain of another human being, we call that conversation. And so, you know, our ability to converse with each other is growing exponentially, but it's about to grow even further than what we, you know, we, of course, today we have Skype, but what's happening now is that the, the voice quality that is enabled will be, you know, growing substantially, and we'll end up with a voice conversation capability that will be similar to the web in the sense that there isn't a metering associated with, you know, in the web, you don't care if the website's in Hong Kong or wherever, and we're headed to a, a voice world where that's the case, where you can just connect with anybody anywhere on the world and not worry about metering or the cost, and you'll do it in really high quality. And so this sort of brings me back to government. So the government had regulated the business of conversa remote conversations since 1934. And it turned out that there was a great deal of improvement in voice quality from the invention of the telephone in 1876 right up until 1934. And immediately in 1934, it stopped. And the reason voice quality is really important is, you know, should be obvious to folks, but it's not in the sense that, you know, nobody, you know, was pushing to get high-definition TV, just like today, nobody's pushing to get high-definition voice. But it turns out that the, the emotional content and sort of the understanding and the avoiding of errors is tied in with the quality of, of the voice conversation. So as we move to sort of unbounded ability to have conversations, for the conversations to be really high quality, just essentially as if you're there in place, my hope is that humanity will find it much easier to get along, much easier to collaborate, and for team humanity to get a tool. Because ultimately, the, the tool of team machine is essentially weapons in one form or another of violence. And the main tool for humanity is, is various forms of communication, the ones that are covered in the First Amendment, speech, press, religion, assembly. And so there's always this tension between the folks trying to concentrate power and the people trying to communicate with each other. And so I think we're on the edge of, of really a, a breakthrough in, in the ability of people to, to have conversations. I mean, obviously the explosion of uh, podcasts and improvement of earbuds and things is, uh, I guess, testimony to the fact that there is a drive towards this kind of intimacy. I mean, I certainly know that when we switched from twisted pair analog landlines to cell phones, you know, the quality of my phone conversations, well, it diminished. You know, the phone became, I'll meet you there exactly. at this time. And that was really all you could accomplish. You know, so if we can get that back, um, you know, that would be interesting. I mean, and you see it happening even on people's, uh, on people's handhelds. Yeah. So, it's going to happen basically what let's say within one or two years your handheld will have high definition it, it the capability is already there in any phone that you've bought you purchased in the last four years it's been held up by regulations and 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 that is turning and so within a year and a half or so every conversation you have on your smartphone will be an hd conversation but the the next thing that happens is that the spaces that we're in become wired for sound, you know, you and I struggled to, to get the sound going in, in, in our initial conversation here. 
that if if conversation became that important that we would then solve the problem of how, how to wire the spaces that we're in for sound and for conversation and then we can easily initiate conversations between each other. But again, all this sort of comes back to to the existence of team human caring, right? So, you know, conversations will become important enough if team human realizes that we're in a fight here and, and we need to work together. And, and I guess without getting too, uh, 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 sci-fi about it, do you, do you, I mean, I, I see this, this struggle as, um, as existential, you know, that it, it feels to me that humanity itself is under threat, you know, either for its, its, biological existence or our our mental existence you know and that in the course of our lifetimes we're going to be making choices as a society that really determine what role humans are going to have in their own destiny right and but again that isn't new in the sense that that's always been the stakes uh in this battle between what is a you know some form of power elite and then the, the everyone else and so Right, whether talking about slavery or colonialism or genocide or yeah, yeah, or feudalism, or you know, it was always the case that, and it was you know, a while back I read, um, you know, Machiavelli's The Prince, and the one when you read that, the one thing that sort of jumps out at you is like, holy mackerel, these folks are really afraid of the people. You know, they have all kinds of really elaborate and clever and dark ways to, you know, placate the people. Uh, and there's just a real, quite a, a sophisticated technique about it. But the bottom line is they are really, really afraid of the people from their standpoint at the top of the pyramid. And so this tension between the people at the top of the pyramid trying to, you know, preserve the status quo where they're at the top of the pyramid, at the same time, they're, you know, issuing a a sort of wall-to-wall PR campaign to tell everybody at the bottom of the pyramid, hey, everything's okay, or you're just so dumb, you deserve to be down there. One of the, the messages that we just collectively get today is the reason things are so bad is our fault as the people. We, we just hate each other, and we're always fighting, and, and the various you know groups that div- people divide them into are at war with each other, um, and that it's our fault that things are so running so poorly. But again, I think from the perspective of Team Human, we say, no, wait a minute. You know, when the Titanic sunk, it was because the guy that was the captain of the ship and the owner ran the thing into an iceberg, and it was a failure of competence. And that, yes, you know, the Titanic had various classes of people on board, but to blame the sinking of the Titanic on the classes of people that were on board and their you know, inability to get along is silly. And so that's, that's where we are today, that to the extent the world's on fire, it's not the fault of the people, it's the, it's the fault of the, the folks that actually control the levers of power. And, and a team human needs to push back on those assertions. And many of those people are, have long since left the building. You know, there's people in power today who don't realize that the mechanisms they're using to maintain their power um, are not the only ones available to them, right? And but again, I, as individuals, I, you know, they're, as individuals, they're welcome to do whatever they want uh, and make whatever claims they want. And it's on us uh, as Team Human if we fall for it. But 
again, I think what we're trying to get to in, in our conversation today is it's not inevitable, right? So it's, you know, it, it, there are humans behind Team Machine that are trying to convince us of things, whether it's, you know, Google or Facebook or whatever. Um, but I, I agree with you in the, in, on the existential point that, you know, this is a moment where it could go either way. And I think those are the moments that, you know, humans rise up and, and, and so get coherently organized, and we need to. And that's where I, you know, think that if we get more and more excited about actually talking to each other, that will help. But, yeah, I mean, things do look dark, and I think one of the ways to detect whether Team Human's winning or losing is, is the extent of our optimism. And, and right now, people do not seem very optimistic, so I'm, I'm going to take it that Team Human's losing at the moment. And hopefully the more we talk, the more we connect in, uh, in these ways. I mean, I think audio and conversation, I mean, obviously I wouldn't be doing this otherwise. I think they're the key to uh, uh, invigorating uh, our cultural intimacy and uh, reaching across some of these uh, arbitrary and unnecessary boundaries. So I want to thank you for um, both making those conversations clearer and uh, and participating in this one, you're a, uh, a a true a true member of Team Human, uh, probably longer than I've been, not not on the Earth, but as a conscious member of the of this project. Um, so thanks for that. Well, and thank you for hosting, and let, and let's keep recruiting for Team Human and 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 press ahead. Thank you for participating on Team Human. Tell the others, forward to your friends. It's time we do this thing for real. We are entirely listener supported. You can find out how to get involved, more about our guests, and ways to support the show at teamhuman.fm. Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.